Listener Production. A warning. This episode contains references to violent crimes. The number for Lifeline is 13 11 14. Please listen with care. Welcome to Crime Insiders Forensics. For those joining us for the first time, my name's Catherine Fox. I'm a former GP, crime author and screenwriter. I'm enthralled by forensics and have spent thousands of hours researching for books and screenplays. So, I thought, why not turn my research into a podcast? Every week, you'll be joining me in discovering how forensic science is helping solve high-profile crimes in Australia and around the world. This week, how firearm and ballistic analysis helped catch one of Australia's most notorious killers. I was wanted to or needed to sift the soil underneath her head looking for the three missing bullets. That would indicate that she'd been shot at that location as opposed to being shot somewhere else and then transported. Gerard Dutton is one of Australia's most respected ballistic experts. It's Gerard's job to inspect and analyse a crime scene through the lens of guns, bullets and explosives. The evidence that I found and the evidence I examined was indicative of two people. It makes no sense to me that only one person was involved there. He'll recreate, reconstruct and often reenact crimes to get to the truth and to bring justice for those who may have been injured or killed. One case that stood out to Jared is that of Ivan Milat. Now this is a case that a lot of you know well, but the ballistics evidence is something I hadn't heard before and it's a fascinating example of how forensics can help catch a killer. I was attached to the New South Wales Police Ballistic Section at the time. We take turns being on call for probably a week at a time or or thereabouts, and any shootings requiring our attendance were available to to attend um, either in office hours or out of normal hours over the weekends, etc. And I was on call at the time, the first two bodies were found in the Blanglow Forest. And I remember I was with my partner going to another job in the Blue Mountains. At that time, we were we operated as the bomb squad and a, a suspected device was placed outside, I think it was the Katoomba Council Chambers. We were heading up to there and we heard on commercial radio, actually, that two bodies had been found in the Blanglow Forest south of Sydney. And I do recall even saying to my partner at that time, well, gee, you know, if, they, if they've been shot, we'll be at an autopsy uh, the following day because that's part of our role. And indeed, that's how it panned out because of the two victims, one of them had been shot multiple times in, in the head. And that's how I first became involved, uh, heading to the autopsy at the Glebe Mortuary the next day for the postmortem examination upon Caroline Clark. And she was shot, uh, as it turned out, 10 times in the head with a 22 calibre firearm. Given the body was decomposed... How much information could you garner from the post-mortem? They disappeared around April and they weren't found, I think it was September. And so they'd been lying in the forest, Blanglow Forest, over the winter months. And indeed, they'd been, um, one of the bodies was placed underneath an overhanging rock and the other was covered with with bush refuse and and branches and whatnot. So they they were protected from the elements somewhat. 
and also it was the cooler months. So the decomposition that you'd normally expect was not as bad as some, because sometimes you're just left with skeletal remains and there's no there's no flesh. So sometimes you, it's difficult to know how someone might have died because if it, their injury was only soft tissue, which has since decomposed, well, that evidence is no longer there. So the condition of those two bodies was not too bad. And so at the mortuary, of course, yes, they were partially decomposed, but certainly we weren't dealing with a skeleton. And it was, um, you know, the bodies are x-rayed and it was clear from, with Carolyn Clark at least, that she had multiple objects inside her head and you could see even the bullet defects uh, in the skull from the x-rays. And so uh, us attending the autopsy is not only to recover those bullets for later examination, but we, we're trying to work out if we can the direction the bullets were fired from and any other evidence which is going to assist us in trying to work out what's happened in the commission of these crimes and indeed what evidence we've got which might help tie us to the offender or, or offenders. At the post-mortem then, presumably you have the photographs from the scene and angles of head, anything like that. Is that presuming too much already or not? At that time, I don't know whether I would have had seen photos. These days, when uh, photos are quickly uploaded digitally to a sort of database, we use a forensic register. And in fact, a lot of the states in Australia use a, you know, a program which captures all this information, both in written form or, or typed form and, and photographs. Probably wasn't until later that I actually got to see photos of the scene and the context in which the bodies were found, because that becomes important. In the event with Carolyn Clark, we found seven bullets in her skull, and yet there were 10 entry wounds. So three bullets were missing. Where are they? And so, of course, then it becomes highly relevant. Where was she in the forest? Where was she lying? I was wanted to or needed to sift the soil underneath her head looking for the three missing bullets because uh, that would indicate that she'd been shot at that location as opposed to being shot somewhere else and then transported to another location. And indeed, also the looking for the presence of any fired cartridge cases. And indeed, that's what we found near her body were, were 10 22 caliber fired cartridge cases from the murder weapon only several metres from where she was um, secreted next to a, a large log. For people who aren't familiar, and I think a lot of people in Australia particularly, are not familiar with guns and ammunition, can you describe the difference between a cartridge and a bullet? Cartridges are often mistakenly referred to as Bullets, meaning the whole unit, if you like, it's not correct. A bullet is a part of a cartridge. So a cartridge consists of the bullet, which is the part that leaves the gun. Cartridge case, which is a, generally a brass container, if you like, which holds the bullet. And within the cartridge itself, there's gunpowder or propellant and a, a primer. There's two main forms of primer. Basically, that's the ignition source for the propellant. So when the firing pin strikes the cartridge, the primer which is a pressure-sensitive chemical, explodes, it ignites the propellant, and that creates a large amount of gas, which burns very quickly, and that's what propels the bullet from the gun. Bullet leaves the gun, you've still got what remains in the gun as the cartridge case, and that needs to be removed or extracted uh, for, for a live, a fresh cartridge to go into the chamber. Now, that can be done manually, or it can be done by the mechanism of the firearm itself. For example, in a bolt-action rifle, you have to manipulate the bolt itself, the breech bolt, via a handle to lift it up, pull it back, that extracts and ejects the fired case, you push it forward, push it down again, and then you've chambered a new cartridge ready for firing. So there's lots of different ways that can happen, but suffice to say, you either pull it out yourself 
by means of the mechanism or the mechanism does it for you in the case of a semi-automatic or a self-loading weapon and indeed for machine guns. In this case, was it likely to be manually removed or just ejected from the weapon? Once I'd had a look at the bullets we'd recovered and the cartridge case, we were fortunate in this particular case I was able to determine that the type of firearm that was used to kill Carolyn Clark at that scene was a self-loading or semi-automatic firearm. And in fact, it was a type of Ruger rifle, a common form of uh, semi-automatic Ruger rifle. I was able to determine that by looking at the marks left on both the bullet and the cartridge case, because the marks left behind were particular to that model of rifle only and didn't apply to other forms of firearms. Because sometimes when we have these sorts of instances occur... We'll say to the investigators, look, let's say a 22 caliber firearm was used, but we know from the database that there are dozens and dozens of manufacturers that construct their rifles in this way and use a similar form of rifling or dimensions of rifling, etc., which means that we can only give them a list of possible types. And that might be a, you know, an A4 page of, of a couple of dozen or even more. In this case, I were able to say to the investigators, look, based on what we've got, this was this model rifle because the marks were peculiar only to that model of rifle. And that was really fortunate because then we can narrow our focus instead of thinking, oh gosh, you know, there's many different makes and models that could be responsible. Where do you start? It's easier if you know that you've only got one make and model to look at. In terms of calibre, can you just briefly talk us through calibre and the significance and what it actually means? You can talk about uh, generic or nominal calibre and specific calibre. So what was used in this case was a 22 calibre firearm. 22 basically means it's um, approximately the cartridge or the bullet is 0.22 of an inch in diameter. So if we talk about a 38 calibre bullet, that's going to be 0.38 of an inch. A 45 calibre bullet, 0.45 of an inch. Now that's an imperial way of saying things and the Europeans use a metric metric term, and in fact, 22 calibre is actually 5.6 millimetres, and that's also correct. Calibre designation is an absolute minefield of, there's no consistency, um, it's just developed the way it did, and it's the way cartridges are named and called, it's just uh, a dog's breakfast, let's say. So if we say a 22 rifle is a nominal 0.22 of an inch, then you have specific calibre. In this case, the specific calibre used was a 22 long rifle cartridge. That's the name of the cartridge, and it's a rimfire cartridge. To give you another example of a 22 calibre cartridge is 0.223 Remington. That's another type of 22 calibre cartridge, but it's very different from the 22 long rifle. And in fact, when we talk about 22 calibre, there's many, many different types of cartridges that have that same nominal calibre, but their specific calibre is different. And so these cartridges are different sizes, different lengths. The only commonality is that they have a, a bullet that's approximately 0.22 of an inch. And after that, it's uh, the variations are, are quite wide. Then at the autopsy, there are seven bullets contained within the skull of one of the victims. How do you go about determining entry and exit wounds and from where they could have been fired, from which direction, for example, first? Bullets were named to um, uh, bone, and particularly uh, bone like the skull, which is a sort of brittle substance. They will leave a clean entry on the outer table of the bone, but on the 
inner surface of the skull, once the brain's been removed, you can see a cratering effect where it, uh, the bullets, as it's on its passage through the bone, actually punch out pieces of bone so that you have a, a clean round hole on the entry side, but on the exit side, it leaves a crater. And that gives you an idea of the directionality. And in fact, if you shot the skull from inside out, you would get the opposite of that because that's just how that material behaves when struck with bullets. Carolyn Clark was shot 10 times, as I, as I mentioned, and from th three different directions, the left, right, and the rear. And uh, the cratering inside the inner table of the skull was quite even because if bullets hit at an angle, you won't get an evenly shaped defect. And so the, the way the uh, each of these bullet holes were um, their locations and their actual shapes indicated that the bullets had pretty much hit the bone perpendicular. And because we had three different directions they're coming from, it meant that either the body was moved in between and the shooter was still and shots were fired, the body moved, shots were fired, the body moved and the shots were fired to account for those three different directions, or the shooters moved around the victim firing from different angles. Now, because the 10 cartridge cases that we found in the forest near her body were all in one small area, and knowing that the Ruger 10-22 rifle is a semi-automatic rifle and automatically ejects the cartridge cases, the shooter stayed virtually in the same spot for all 10 shots because all the cartridge cases were ejected into a very small area. Had the shooter walked around the body to account for those different angles into the head, the cartridge cases would have been spread over a much wider area. So that's just a, an example of something we can determine from a reconstructive aspect what's happened. So did the shooter fire several times into her head, move the body, pick up the gun, fire again, or was there another person moving the body for whatever reason as it was rolled in towards the, the log where she, she was found? But in any case, it was fairly clear that the shooter didn't move for all 10 shots. And that is important. And the fact also that we found three bullets in, in the uh, soil under, underneath where her head was uh, indicated that she was shot at that location. So that may or may not be critical evidence, but it, it allows us to tell something as to how this event took place. Would you request to go back to the crime scene? Obviously, these um, remains were brought to the morgue before you got to see them? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, what the, how it would normally work is we would be at the scene firstly, then uh, we'd be at the autopsy. Then I, I always go back to the scene because armed with that information from, from the uh, autopsy, you can then have a greater understanding of the scene. And so uh, it's vitally important to go back a second time um, from, from my perspective and I'll... I'll, I'll pretty much always do that. Um, and, and in this case, of course, we didn't go to the scene initially. The crime scene examiners from Goulburn attended. and uh, But of course, once the bodies get to the mortuary, they're x-rayed. Yes, one of them has multiple bullet wounds in the head. Then we get involved. So in this case, it was the autopsy first, but then going back to the scene and, and looking at where was the body. And, and of course, that's when we found cartridge cases and, and, and the other evidence like the extra bullets in the soil and it, indeed anything else that's going to be of um, a value or, or have evidentiary um, value. You've been to the post-mortem, you've retrieved the bullets and you've got cartridges from the scene. What is the next step for you? You go back to the lab and what happens? 
So after we've finished with the scene, and we've, it, it, that was a good result because it was clear Carolyn Clark had been shot 10 times in the head. Her travelling companion, um, Joanne Walters, she'd been stabbed to death, no firearm injury. So she, had, she was shot 10 times in the head. We recovered a total of 10 bullets and there were 10 cartridge cases. That, that was great because we don't normally recover all of the, uh, all, certainly all the bullets um, uh, and indeed the cartridge cases, for example, could be picked up and we, we, we don't have those at all. But what we'll do after collecting that is we'll take the bullets um, uh, back to the laboratory. Essentially, they'll need to be cleaned because these bullets, when, when the skull of uh, Carolyn uh, was, was opened, as I said, this had been lying in the forest for, for some months. And so the, the decomposed brain had settled into a pool on one side of the head. And we, we were recovering the bullets, just using gloved hands, scooping this stuff out with our fingers because they're just looking for little hard lumps. Because you don't want to use a sharp tool or a metal tool to recover these because they could mark the bullet. And that was the process. And I, and I clearly remember doing that with uh, Peter Bradhurst, who was the forensic pathologist. And whoop, here's one, clink, and we dropped that into the tray. Here's another one. So it was, uh, that, was, that was how these were recovered. But then we might rinse them at the mortuary, but back in the lab, we'll give them a proper cleaning of decomposed material. And then we're going to microscopically examine the features left on the surface of the bullets. And we're going to microscopically examine and measure the features on the cartridge cases. Now, when a cartridge is fired in a gun, from it, the moment it's loaded into a magazine, fed into the chamber, fired, extracted, and, a, and the case ejected, that process will mark both the case and the bullet in certain ways. So anywhere where the cartridge case, in this case, uh, they were made of brass, it's relatively soft metal compared to the steel of the firearm mechanism, everywhere they, they contact the, the firearm mechanism has the potential uh, to leave um, uh, small microscopic uh, what can be microscopic marks, and they can be uh, like scratch marks or they can be like impressed marks. So the firing pin impression, for example, when you pull the trigger, the firing pin hits the rim of the rim fire cartridge. Hitting the rim crushes the priming compound I explained before. That ignites the cartridge. So the firing pin impression in the brass rim is an imprint of the face of the firing pin. And microscopically, the face of that firing pin, we're only talking several millimetres square in size, is, has geographical features which will impress themselves into the brass. The bullets, when they're fired from the gun, they're in intimate contact with the inner surface of the barrel, the bore. And as the bullet travels down the bore, they're imparted a twist from what's called the rifling. Uh, that twist spins the bullet so that when it leaves the barrel, it has gyroscopic stability. That's what gives it accuracy. And that intimate contact of the bullet with the surface of the bore is basically scratching it. And so the, the surface of the bullet, which is in contact with the inner surface of the, the barrel, has a series of very fine scratches, both from the rifling, which is cut into the, the bore by the manufacturer of that particular gun, as well as even finer scratches, which are particular to that barrel and not other barrels. So when we measure relative locations, widths and sizes of all these features, we can then refer to a database which has basically been compiled for many, many decades. The FBI in America started this database, but now it's administered by the Association of Firearm and Toolmark Examiners, which is the forensic 
group of people who deal with these sorts of incidents. It's the largest of its type in the world. And that database is of thousands, tens of thousands of different firearms and the sizes and widths and types of rifling, firing pins, extractors, ejectors, breech face types. All of these characteristics are measurable and the database lists many of these firearms. Not, it's never complete because there's always new guns and there's uh, a lot of obviously uh, uh, rarer guns which probably might not be on there. But by measuring the information on the bullets and cartridge cases, comparing it to this database, that tells you then these guns, uh, based on uh, whatever parameters you, you, you have, it indicates the type of gun that could have fired those cartridge cases and bullets. And I mentioned earlier, when I went through this process, it indicated only one gun. And primarily that was not only from the, the type of rifling employed in the Ruger 10-22 rifle, but the type of firing pin employed in this particular gun at that time, not now, they've changed it, um, but at, at that time it was a particular shape and offset between 12 and 1 o'clock in relative location terms when looking at the breech face. It's the only gun that's out there that leaves these types of characteristics. And so we could say to the investigators, look, the gun that was used to kill Carolyn Clark was a 22 calibre Ruger uh, self-loading rifle or semi-automatic rifle. That's the gun that was used and we can discount all others. Uh, that's really, really helpful because uh, you can narrow the search down. But as time went on, I looked at other Ruger 1022s coming in for examination for other jobs and like a lot of jobs that we get with uh, uh, murders that aren't initially solved, these get stored in, in the ballistic section and they're referred to from time to time when we get other Ruger rifles for examination or, for, or, or we're requested to check a particular gun against those exhibits. But, but that's what happened in this case. These series of murders, or at least the, for the two girls or Clark, wasn't solved straight away and the exhibits were, ended up being folded in what we call our unsolved crime drawers that has bullets and cartridge cases from many, many shootings which a suspect or an offender has never been identified. And all we can do as time goes on is compare other guns that come into the section against what we physically have in these unsolved crime to see if we can by chance come across the murder gun. And that's what happened and they got filed away and were looked at less and less because we didn't know who killed them and it wasn't forthcoming at that time. And we just thought, and I thought, oh, this is just going to be another double murder with no offender identified, and that sometimes happens. And that, of course, was the process up until the time that another couple of bodies were found in the Blanglow Forest, but that, that changed everything at that point. So I'd worked out as much as I could determine from the exhibits, passed that on to the investigators, they used that information, they followed up undoubtedly many, many other inquiries, and uh, as time went on, as the months passed, um, all of these leads petered out and it really was, looked like it was going to be an unsolved double murder. Just to put it in context, this was before the Port Arthur massacre in Tasmania and the way Australia treated guns may have been different then. How common was that weapon in Australia at the time? 
It was a very common and popular rifle. In fact, it's one of the finest 22 rifles that's ever been made. It really is a, a very, very good design. And of course, the gun laws at that point were uh, across Australia were, were much uh, less stringent than they are now. So although they would know from records from the Ruger factory that thousands, if, if indeed might have even been tens of thousands, they knew had been imported into the country, um, it wasn't as clear where they all went. That wasn't as easy as it might be today to try and track them down. And so, of course, we looked at, I looked at many, many hundreds of Ruger 1022 rifles during the course of this inquiry on the off chance of trying to find the murder weapon. And it really was a, a you know, looking for a needle in a haystack because we knew there were th- uh, many, many of these model guns in Australia. Probably you might think, well, we don't really have to worry about Western Australia as much as the ones in uh, New South Wales, for example, but still, we didn't know where they all were, and ones we did know, we we certainly looked at, and as I said, I did look at hundreds of these, and over a period of years, I was comparing test fires I made with with some of these rifles, compared back to the exhibits from the murder scene, to try and see if the same microscopic marks were showing, which would then indicate that, uh, you know, out of, all, out of all the Ruger rifles out there, the only one committed was responsible uh, for being used in this murder, and and uh, and that's what I was looking for, for the, looking for those similarities uh, microscopically between different examples of this model rifle. Because even though they would leave similar marks, just as like you might consider, there are many Ford Festivas out there on the road. Let's say uh, Ford imported two thousand blue Festivas, but if you put them all in one spot they're all going to probably look a little bit different because some are going to have scratches and some are going to have different features and one's got a bull bar or one might have a toe bar and so on and so forth. So there are there are things which allow us to, even though they're all the same model, you look cl- closer and you can tell them apart. And indeed, that's what it was like for the 1022 rifle we were looking for, is looking for those idiosyncratic things which were appearing on the murder exhibits, looking for that turning up on another example of that rifle. So what was the next step for you in that case? Over the period of months following, as I said, I I looked at many test firings. I I testified many, many dozens, in fact, hundreds of 1022s. I did go and look at a whole swag of 1022 rifles which had been tested as a result of several years earlier, Assistant Commissioner Colin Winchester of the AFP was shot dead in Canberra. A Ruger 1022 rifle was used in that particular murder, and they had a lot of test firings from different 1022 rifles. So I went down to Canberra and uh, and looked at all their test firings, um, just because you know they've 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 got quite a a lot all in one go. It made perfect sense to it. Let's see if um, Canberra's not that far from the Blanglow Forest. It's still then the whole Southern Highlands sort of area. It um it was essential to go and have a look at those, and of course. Um, after comparing, physically comparing all the ones they had with the murder exhibits, there was no, uh, I still hadn't found the murder gun. And so I, you know, I'm moving on to other jobs. These things get filed. I might, I might turn up one week. The investigators have found another rifle, 1022 rifle. Can you test fire it and check it against the murder exhibits? Yep, did that. No, it wasn't the gun. And so my contact with that became less and less. That all changed in 1993. Another couple of bodies were found in the forest and it became apparent at that time then that this isn't just a, an isolated thing. It, it really looks like we've got a serial murder or murderers and they're secreting bodies in the forest. 
And at that point, a task force was set up to investigate this and indeed one of the largest police searches ever conducted. And so the whole inquiry then kicked off in far greater earnestness, if you like. And as a result of that, yes, more bodies were found, one of which was shot. And that, that's when the, this particular snowball really started to, to, to gather some momentum. You were called in. Did you attend that scene? The two bodies that were found were a couple of Australians who were travelling and they disappeared in a similar sort of time frame as, as the others, as it turns out. Um, there were a whole lot of specialists on standby then because if they realised if we're going to search the forest, then if other bodies were found, we need to be able to basically do what's required at very short notice without sort of then starting to um, uh, try and gather everything that's needed. So... I was on standby, but as it turns out, those two bodies that were found, the third and fourth bodies, neither of those were shot. They'd been stabbed to death. And so I had less involvement with that than the sixth and seventh bodies were found because uh, they were the two Germans and uh, Gabor Neugebauer had been shot six times in the head. So after the third and fourth body were found, the search is conducted in the forest, hundreds of police searching for many weeks and it was only a short time later they found a fifth body that was Simone Schmidl. She was another German. She'd also been stabbed to death. There was no evidence of firearm injury with her and so again my my involvement was uh, limited but when they found the sixth and seventh bodies in a similar area in another part of the forest that's when Gabor Neugebauer had been shot six times in the head his companion, Anya Habshid, she'd been decapitated. We never found her skull, and they were secreted within a sort of a reasonably close area. But of most value at that particular scene, after going down and examining the area where their bodies were found, as it turns out, they'd been in the forest for some years, and he had bullets in his skull, but they were so badly corroded, all I could say was they were 0.22 calibre, 0.22 rimfire, but the marks that would have been left on them by the gun that fired them were destroyed by the decomposition process. And so that was disappointing because I was very keen, obviously, to compare the bullets from his skull to the bullets from Carolyn Clark's skull to determine if the same firearm had been used, even to determine if it was the same, had the same class rifling, let alone be able to actually identify the same gun. But not that far away from where their bodies were found, we found an area of the offenders had set, and I say offenders because I'd, I'm, I'm re- quite certain there were two people at this location. We found some cartridge cases, 22 caliber cartridge cases. And from memory, I think there were 47 Winchester cases and 46 Ely brand. And of the Winchester cases, as I later found when I did my microscopic examination back in the lab, they were all fired in the same gun that was used to kill Carolyn Clark. That was unequivocal. The marks were very clear. And that was nice to be able to definitively link two of the crime scenes because although we have seven bodies in the forest, we can assume it's the same killer or killers. It was linking the, the same gun used at two locations to show, no, this is definitely the same person or persons using the same gun. But at that location, as it turns out, with all of the Winchester, with the... Ruger 1022 marks, the Ely brand cases all had totally different markings on them for a totally different rifle. And there weren't any of the firing pin impressions and other marks that indicated the Winchester brand cartridges were used in 
one gun and the Ely in another. It was pretty clear to me you had two people, each with their own gun, firing their own box of ammunition. And not having any crossover, I think, is very, very telling. Who that second person was, who knows? Um, uh, there's always been conjecture about that. But that alone, from a ballistics perspective, to me, it makes no sense that if it was only one person, they're just going to use one gun with one type of cartridge in, in one rifle, then use a different gun with a different type. As it turns out, both of the cartridges used were uh, what's called subsonic, and that means they fire a bullet slower than the speed of sound. Now, why that's important is because the bullets that we recovered from Carol and Clark had marks on them consistent with having been caused by um, the bullet scraping past a baffle in a sound suppressor. So if you use supersonic bullets that are fired supersonically with a gun fitted with a sound suppressor, that will suppress the sound of the discharge of the cartridge, but you'll still get a supersonic crack as, with, as the bullet breaks the sound barrier. You can silence the gun, but not the, not the bullet. Using subsonic cartridges or bullets that travel slower than the speed of sound you don't get a supersonic crack and the sound suppressor uh, um, suppresses the noise of the explosion of the cartridge, which makes them much, much quieter. And so both of the, those cartridges, the Winchester and Ely, as it turns out, fire a subsonic bullet. And so that all, that all married up with the information that was apparent at that time. As I said, we could draw correlations between two of the scenes couldn't correlate between the bullets from both victims, and that was a shame, but that's how, that's how it is sometimes with this work. It's interesting that you suspect there were two different people involved of your findings. Did the police agree with you, the investigators? Do you know? Look, I know Clive Small, who was the commander of the Task Force Air, which was set up to investigate the Blanglo Forest murders, always steadfastly said he believes it's only one person. He would be privy to information I don't have. I'm just looking at it purely from a ballistics perspective. And from a ballistics perspective, uh, the evidence that I found and the evidence I examined was indicative of two people. It makes no sense to me that, that only one person was involved there. Based on, as I said, the brands of cartridge cases and no crossover of, of the same weapon being used across both brands, etc. After doing this work for many decades now, things sort of make sense or they don't make sense. And to me, it's far more logical to me that two people are involved at that scene. How did you get to actually examine the gun that was believed to have killed Garbor and Carolyn? Yeah, so this this is where it became sort of quite... Um, uh, interesting, as I said, you know, that's not the snowball was gathering momentum. Now that we've got seven bodies and, you know, the task force are obviously looking at many, many different suspects that they thought could have been involved. At some point, look, I, I'm not sure where the information would have come from, but I understand that Ivan Malat and perhaps his, some of his brothers were potential suspects, along with probably what would have been hundreds and hundreds of other potential suspects. Paul Onions, who was a backpacker who... Um, he was back in England, Paul Onions, and, and had seen, uh, I understand, something in the media about, you know, all these bodies being found in the forest and how they'd been abducted and so on. And he uh, thought, oh, goodness, you know, that, that sounds like uh, something I was, um, went through. So he was the, picked up as a hitchhiker um, in the, on the 
uh, southern outskirts of Sydney, I believe, and driven south by a chap who, who uh, at some point started to act a little strange and then pulled over on the pretext of getting some cassettes out from underneath his seat or something like that, which Paul said he thought was odd because there were cassettes in the centre console. And when he pulled over just off the highway, on the on the Hume Highway as you head south, he's he's reached under the seat and pulled out a, a revolver and, and rope, which... As Paul said, it wasn't the revolver didn't just scare me as as much as the rope did. He managed to get away from that situation and ran down the road. That person fired after him with this revolver, he, he, but he wasn't struck. And he piled into a, a car that he managed to flag down and uh, went and reported this uh, incident to the police. But it was never properly followed up for for, for whatever reason. And 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 again, I, I can't comment on on what happened there, but. But then, you know, years later when he's watching this media story about all these bodies being turned up in the forest, he's, he thought, wow, that's, that's, too, that's too close to my experience to, to be um, a coincidence, surely. And he got in contact through, through obviously, through um, his local police, uh, who perhaps were Interpol with the task force, and he told his story, and they were very interested in that. And they flew him to Australia to conduct an interview and indeed to run through some possible suspects. And because he had such a good description, Paul, Paul was a great witness and he, he had very clear recollection of some of the issues that he was able to narrow down the list of suspects. And when he was shown photos of possible suspects, which fitted his description, lo and behold, he's, he's uh, identified Ivan Malat, who was one of any number at that point, I, I understand. So when the task force now look into the movements of Ivan Malat and what he was doing at the times, the people have disappeared. Interestingly, you find that Malat was either on holidays or sick or was otherwise not at work on the days that these seven victims have disappeared. And the closer they looked, the more uh, interesting he became as a suspect because things were starting to fall into place and everything was starting to indicate more and more that he was a very good suspect as opposed to um, sort of ruling him out for, for whatever reason. A series of raids were carried out on Ivan Malat's property and some of the other members of his family, and they were conducted simultaneously. I was involved in conducting a search upon his house with um, a couple of the detectives from the task force and the, and the, the crime scene chap who, who had carriage of this from the very start from Goulburn. We just wanted to look through the house and just see what was, what evidence might be immediately apparent, which might be useful. But on the morning of that first day, one of the detectives was up in the ceiling space. There was a whole lot of boxes of Christmas decorations and other stuff stored up in the ceiling space. But, but this detective was was actually running along the wall cavities, which were filled with bats. In one particular location, he's shone his torch and could see a plastic bag resting on a noggin about a metre down inside one of the wall cavities. And he recovered this, looked inside, and he and uh, he, he called for me, and I went and uh, had a look what he's found. And I was tremendously excited because inside the bag was a an aftermarket magazine for a Ruger 1022, and most importantly, a complete breech bolt assembly that I knew instantly was from a Ruger 1022 rifle because I was very familiar with it by that stage. And the, the, I was tremendously excited to see that because what's the chance? Why would anyone disassemble a gun and leave certain components in, inside a wall cavity? And so I was, I was very interested to look closely at this breech bolt. And, um, 
Uh, and indeed, after three days of helping search and I'd you know, assist with any firearms evidence that was at that house, and, and that included most parts of the Ruger rifle. We never, the barrel, we never found. We didn't find the stock or the cocking lever, but all the other components, because this gun had been disassembled, uh, we found in various locations. Uh, and, uh, for example, the receiver, that part of the gun which has the serial number stamped on it, was found wrapped in plastic in a boot in a hall cupboard. So Mlat had disassembled the gun, probably got rid of the barrel because he could, he knew that police could potentially match bullets but didn't understand fully what we could do with the breech bolt in relation to the cartridge cases. So after three days, I told the, the commander of the task force, you know, I really need to examine this in the laboratory, the, the breech bolt, because it's from a Ruger 1022. Ivan is your main suspect at the present time. If I can positively match that breech bolt as being used at two of these murder scenes, that then is, is solid evidence that implicates him. Now, as it turns out, there was a mountain of circumstantial evidence that implicated Malat in these murders. So I said to the task force, I need to go back to the laboratory. I want to examine this breech bolt. And how I did that was in the ballistic section, um, we have a firearms reference library. It's like a book library, except it's full of guns. And in Sydney, um, it, I guess at that time, there must have been, we had about 8,000 different makes, models. It's a very important tool for us in the investigation of firearm crime. In fact, we can't do our work without it. So I got a, uh, I took a 1022 rifle out of our library, disassembled it, introduced that breech bolt into the mechanism, reassembled it and test fired it. Now the bullets were irrelevant because we didn't have the barrel and bullets would be marked by the barrel that was fitted to the, the library gun. So that, that was of no interest. What was interesting to me was how that cartridge case would be marked in the firing process by the breech bolt that we found in the, the wall cavity at Millet's house. So after I'd test fired in our water tank, collected the cartridge cases, go to the, the comparison microscope, which is essentially it's a specialised optical instrument which allows us to examine two things under the same magnification simultaneously. So we're making a direct comparison of the microscopic surface of, of two items that we can see in the same image, if you like. So normally we'd have our murder uh, or our crime scene exhibits on one stage, on one side. You see that on the left hemisphere of your of the viewpiece and their test-fired cartridge cases on the other side. And so you can look at both surface contour at the same time and draw a direct comparison. So I'd done this hundreds of times with other guns. You put them on there and within seconds sometimes, even though it's the same model of gun, you'd look at that and go, that's not the murder gun because microscopically there were just far too many differences. Sometimes you put them on there and go, oh, that looks a little bit interesting and uh, you'd need to spend some time using different magnification, different light sources, different angles of light sources uh, and so on. You're adjusting the focus, you're manipulating these constantly, looking at all of the marks. And I'd been doing this for now for quite some long time with, with guns that have come in. And I like in the process, and I, this is the analogy how I think about it and which might make sense to the layperson. If you're walking down a city you've never been in and uh, you don't know anyone there and you, you there's just people walking towards you, hundreds of people, thousands of people, and they all look different, you don't know them. But you see one person from time to time, you go, oh, that looks like my friend Fred or that looks like Auntie, Auntie Beryl or, or whatever it might be. But as they get closer, 
you realise, oh, no, that's not them because oh, their hair's a bit darker and I can see their faces a bit different and their eyes are a different colour, whatever it might be. But initially, you, it's something similar. That's the process it was like looking at fired cartridge cases and bullets ever since the start of this inquiry compared to the murder guns, but never seeing the same microscopic, the same pattern of microscopic marks on the murder gun. Then the morning that I looked at my test-fired cartridge cases compared to the murder cases, the instant I put them on the, the microscope and started adjusting the focus, I literally, and I, st- I still feel it now, can feel the hairs stand up on the back of my, on the back of my neck because what I was instantly recognising was that pattern of microscopic marks that I've been looking for, for on, the, on the murder exhibits all this time were now appearing on my test fires of the that I'd just made using the breech bolt from the wall cavity in my lat's house, and that was that was tremendously exciting. So, so you know, I spent the requisite amount of time looking at those properly and examining them in great detail and getting it peer checked by one of my colleagues to say, well, you know, have a look at have a look at these. What do you think? Without giving them any other information, just see what you reckon, and then going, yep, the same guns fired those. And so that then became a, a very important piece of evidence to marry something we've found in his house uh, back to two of the murder scenes. And as I said, with the circumstantial evidence, we found lots of stuff that we could draw correlations to different victims, whether it was their property, whether it was their clothes. We all, we had a very, uh, when we did these, this search and the different properties, we had a list of property and clothing and photos of clothing they were wearing, they were known to have at the time they disappeared. And so uh, having this list available as we're doing a search was really useful. And, and, and indeed, that's what, that's what happened. We found all sorts of stuff that was very clear. It was from various victims in his house. Again, it wasn't just one or two things. It was a veritable mountain. But the firearms evidence at least provided a very unequivocal link between something in his house and two of the murder scenes, which was, um, uh, which was very important in the context of the, um, of the trial. Did the jury have any trouble understanding the evidence at all? Our role as a forensic specialist is to present that evidence in a clear and understandable way. And in fact, for this particular job, I'd made up a number of charts with photographs showing the various features that I was able to use in drawing the correlation between that breech bolt and the, and the marks it would leave on cartridge cases we're very fortunate. The marks that were left were very clear and concise and of very high quality. So once you'd showed a jury to say, well, just in a methodical process, this is how we do this work. This is what I'm looking at. This is why I can say what I say, etc." That was just let out in a, in a methodical manner by the, by the prosecutor and put before the, the jury. And the, I, I don't think they had any trouble understanding that because you're given the time and the importance of this job is such that, you know, you need to be able to explain it properly. You just go through it piece by piece and explain why we say what we're saying and what allows us to say that and just justifying our conclusions. Jared, that was just so fascinating because we've heard so much about Ivan Milat, but the actual logical progression from the ballistics evidence that was used at his trial is something I don't think we know much about at all. So thank you so much for sharing that and thank you very much for joining us. Thanks very much for having me.
Crime Insiders Forensics is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Catherine Fox, and is produced by Ed Gooden. Sound design and imaging is by Link Kelly.